Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and World Affairs, and this is your host, Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with Jerome Dundum about his new book, Dynasties, A Global History of Power, 1300 to 1800, which is put out by Cambridge University Press. Jerome. Welcome to New Books and World Affairs, and this is your host, Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with Jerome Dundum about his new book, Dynasties, A Global History of Power, 1300 to 1800, which is put out by Cambridge University Press. Jerome, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to have you here today. And I was wondering before we get going, if you could say a few words about your background for the listeners. Yeah, well, I'm, I've been trained as an historian. I, I'm a professor of early modern history at Leiden University, but from my studies early studies on, I've always combined history and anthropology. And so I'm a specialist of European history, but I've increasingly been working together with uh, regional specialists, Ottomanists, Sinologists, and others who look at the same themes that I'm studying, that I have been studying. And basically over the last 10, 20 years, I've, fo- I've focused on uh, courts, royal courts, uh, dynastic power, rulership, uh, and so on these themes, I've been developing a, a collaboration with many people across the globe. And th- this finally led to the book that we're discussing today. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic. I, I wish I have, uh, had read more on it, but you're, you're, you opened my eyes in a lot of ways. And I, I guess the, the place to start is why the emphasis on comparison. You, you seem to be part of this trend in global history to write comparisons across many cultures and different backgrounds. I was wondering if you could say more about the process of getting into the writing a comparative uh, yeah. global history. Well, as a historian of, of Europe, I've always been active in comparative work. So I started out comparing the, the courts of, of, the, of France, of Versailles, and of Vienna, the imperial court at Vienna. So comparison, as it were, is the, the way I always operate as an historian. But I also uh, 
have been drawn to global history. And there I have to say that the, the, the common, the dominant trend in global history seems to be connected rather than comparative history. And comparative history tends to have a reputation of being a Eurocentric, being sort of mega jumbo history, uh, not close to people reasoning from one standard example, mostly Europe, and then and then jumping to universalist conclusions that in fact take away all the flavor and all the the specificities of other cultures. And my feeling is that comparison uh, could work perfectly well if we try to redefine the, the, the way we, we, we compare. And so connected history, transnational history, transimperial history, uh, histoire croisée, entangled history, they all have the, 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 the great uh, benefit that they can bring you very close to people. You can really follow a person, an object, uh, or an idea from one place to another and see how persons or ideas change going from one place to another. But in the end, they describe basically elements of the process of globalization or even to say it a bit more uh, critical elements of the process of European expansion because throughout the last four or five centuries that the, the expansion of Europe has been sort of the dominant aspect of globalization or one of the dominant aspects and I think comparison um, without the Eurocentric, without the very sort of distant, standardized, model-like approach that we've seen a lot in earlier decades, uh, just tries to answer quite different uh, questions, really does not try to reconstruct the, the, the world as an interconnected uh, group of societies and how they came together, but asks certain questions that hopefully are relevant to all polities or all examples that you discuss and then try to bring in the picture the very different solutions for these questions for these problems that can be seen uh, worldwide globally uh, and dynastic power seemed to me an almost ideal subject for a global comparison because it is a relatively universal phenomenon almost all polities with a certain level of hierarchy will have one figure and mostly but not universally, a male figure on a throne will have a group that tries to somehow hold on to power, a dynasty. It will have a social setting, a space, a court where they meet and where they, where a ruler is being served, but also where governance is being organized. And of course, by definition, they they all need in one way or another to relate to society at large. Why Why are these people, why are they accepted? Or are they accepted? Or how do they fit in society at large? So I thought this is a wonderful subject because of its spread over any, any uh, over all parts of the world. Uh, this is a wonderful subject to approach global history and to try and argue really comparison can work if we find the right questions. And if we take distance from uh, a position that really immediately identifies you as somebody primarily or only connected to a certain region of the globe. And so this is basically the experiment of the book. It is an experiment to show that comparative history can really be an essential addition to global history other than what we've seen in, in the connected history field. They, they both are important and I would say really 
very, very uh, necessary for global history, but we should not say, well, comparison is an old-fashioned method. We should no longer use it. I think it's vital. And this statement yeah. is, is heart of the book, I would say. Yeah, you raised some interesting points. Um, in, in terms of this idea of having a comparison have like a universal standard that you judge things by and then look at how things relate to it or not, and you, you kind of raise that issue with this idea of Eurocentrism. Mm -hmm. uh, I was wondering if, what, as far as you can tell, I mean, this is a new book, in terms of the reception, are people buying into this and saying this is a great way to do history, or, or people seem to be more comfortable with the individual case studies and then comparing it to something I don't know, maybe not normative is the right yeah, word, but some type of universal standard. The sort of complication you always have with comparative history is that people tend to look first at the case they know well. And you have to convince them on the basis of the knowledge you show about their specific case. Mm. So let's say sinologists or African Africanists or uh, Ottomanists or Europeanists will have the, the, the tendency to first look at the pages that deal primarily with their issues. And once the, you can convince them there, they may be tempted to go further and then really ponder whether the comparison I try to make is more in, is, is relevant and interesting for them. So what I've done in uh, is working together very closely with specialists in all these fields mm -hmm. and also not just read their books, but also discuss certain issues with them. Does this work? Uh, is this something that fits into your into your world? And people have told me frequently th throughout the last decade or so, no, this doesn't. This is really something <laughs> that is specific for or or for let's say China or for Europe, but you you cannot really easily translate it. And so the layout of the book is based on the thought that you have certain categories, certain questions that really can be adapted to each and every of my examples, but that they, that these general questions will lead to immense variety in answers and that the, the interplay between general questions, variety, is the essence of what I try to do because it will show you that, of course, there's, people often say comparison about similarity is about similarities and differences, but I think first you see certain similarities and you start comparing and then you start you start finding out about differences but actually in the similarities you have to see the differences and in the differences you have to see sort of the pattern the patterns that are behind these apparently very different things uh, and then comparison really gets interesting and it gets more detailed and it allows you to get closer to personal experiences so not to just write about cultures or about huge uh, models, regions of the world, but really about personal experiences in different cultures and then try to connect them to each other. And of course, about reception, I really cannot say so much. The people I've been discussing the book with are seem to be happy with my categories and with my concepts, but I'm sure uh, that there will be um, some criticism, particularly from people who will seriously doubt the theoretical possibility of comparing without really permanently having one example in your mind. And my argument there is we are always universally comparing as historians, as anthropologists, as scholars in general, because we always have certain specific experiences in our mind and we look at other experiences and we implicitly connect them. And the best way to do this is to not do it explicitly, but to think carefully about your methods, do it explicitly and try as best as you can to take distance from the images that of course everybody has in in mind 
Yeah, those are interesting points. And it made me think a lot about um, my complaints. I read stuff. I'm, I'm a specialist in U.S. foreign policy, late uh, 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read books or textbooks, and I'm like, this should be in it. And when there's comparisons done, and I'm like, uh, why isn't this in there? And I got to take a step back and remember that's, you know, they're not doing the same thing. Yeah. They're trying to find common patterns and not outline every level of knowledge that I have about one particular subject. So I think that's a valuable point to remind people uh, what what you're doing in terms of bringing light to broad categories of comparison rather than just specialized knowledge. So I, I, I thank you for that. But one of the one of the issues that that's raised is by by your the way you compare do the comparison is the subject of of comparing things that seem so different mm-hmm. in terms of like a major empire like the Chinese or the Safavids versus smaller kingdoms in Africa or other places that you mentioned other parts of the world. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how you decided to choose your case studies and make the comparison. Yeah, yeah thanks. I think that's really a, a very relevant point. Um, and it's also a point where people will tend to be critical because they will tell me, well, how, however, could you think of com- comparing an African chiefdom with maybe five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand 10,000 people without script uh, in, in, on a very small scale geographically with the Chinese empire? Uh, this doesn't make sense at all. This is they are so distant in in what is sometimes called world historical time or development, and in scale that it really is absurd to compare these these uh, these examples. And um, I hesitated seriously before bringing in Africa because there are all sorts of problems relating to sources that tend to be colonial or outside sources looking on African history or oral history. Uh, usually compiled later on, but actually uh, one of the advisors of one of the presses I, I, I proposed the book to told me, well, do so, bring it in. And this was the best advice he could have ever, or he or she, could have ever given me. Because I think uh, Africa breaks up, breaks open the easy East-West comparisons and cliches that we've often seen. Uh, and, and just giving you one example uh, that strikes me as, as relevant and interesting, uh, it's clear to all Sinologists that Chinese emperors have a, have a major, let's say, cosmic responsibility for the harmony of the world, uh, for the harmony of heavens, um, and for even things such as seasons, rainfall, and that sort of thing. And they, uh, the, the sacrifices they perform are closely related to this high cosmic responsibility that lasts into the 19th century, and we have personal statements by 19th century Qing emperors who really are quite explicit about their own views on this. And this is exactly uh, one of the specific characteristics of African ritual ritual kingship that we find in many places, the responsibility for rain, for harmony, for cosmic balances. And so here you have one, uh, you have the two extremes, let's say, on the scale of world historical time development and so on and so forth. Um, and they show that at the heart of dynastic power, in the notions of kingship, there is really a, a totally parallel concept of kingship. And I find that interesting because it, it tests and it stretches your ideas about what should you compare? How can comparison work? Taking these very different cases sort of reformulates your criteria of comparison. And sometimes, of course, it does not work. Once you look at systems of government, at, at how these central courts establish their connections 
to peripheral regions to 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 different peoples then in the chinese case there are multiple intermediate layers there's an, an a huge apparatus where paperwork plays a major role and in some of my african examples as as uh, one author characterizes it this is open air government this is something that you perform with a group of people whom you can see and and relate to directly and they go back to their villages and they uh, they personally represent you in a way so of course scale makes a big difference but my point is here in some instances it makes such a big difference that comparison uh, that it's too too distant to really bring together, but you make explicit the difference and it's part of your comparison. And in other cases, the very fact that even these very distant examples show close similarities uh, raises vital comparative issues. For instance, another example, if, if you allow me. Uh, of course. Yeah. Uh, it, the, the, um, the way, one of the key problems of rulership is how does a ruler deal with his potential successors, princes? This is a very tense relationship because succession gives rights and rights uh, also entail threats to the, the incumbent ruler, the one who's in power now. And you get specialists working on African history, sinologists uh, working on Chinese history, you make almost literally the same statement about, well, either you keep these princes close to your uh, court, you keep them under some sort of a, a control, or you send them far away and give them all sorts of tasks as generals or governors or so. But you have these two variants, also, or, or keep them close or send them out uh, and far away uh, in particular. And so this is another example uh, how you can say, well, apparently this this tension between uh, ruling a ruler and potential successors plays out in similar ways, even in countries, even in polities that are so fundamentally different in most respects. Does that answer your question, Morris? Yes, it, it, yes, it does. Those are similar problems that have to be dealt with in, in similar ways. I mean, they're, they're, they deal do relate to the issue of how to exercise power effectively. So I think I think that's well well said what you what you just did, and I. I I can't. I keep coming back to this because you, you raised the issue uh, in passing a little bit, but I think it's an important question to get at is when you when you decide to bring in Africa and other societies. You you, may, you mentioned at times the Aztecs and the Incas, for example. The issue of sources and how you, you decided to look at those sources in terms of a lot of them come from Europeans. A lot of them are clearly, you know, have built-in biases. And you you talked about your editor, uh, the the or the 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 press. Telling you to bring them in, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how you dealt with the with yeah. those sources dealing with. Uh, I think there are different two societies. two two, vi uh, two vital issues: these sources uh, and and how do you select your examples and why do you take certain examples and leave out others? Uh, yeah. Sources are really a major problem because there's never total uh, consistency, total symmetry in sources in in comparative history. So even within the Europe European cases I've studied, so with Vienna and Versailles, uh, the archive was incredibly good in Vienna and just really in bad shape in, in Paris. And so I had to use all sorts of other sources, uh, libraries, antiquaries, manuscripts, and so on, to create a balance. So what you try to do is create a balance, create a level of symmetry. And that's particularly different, uh, difficult in, in cases where clearly... Uh, the sources are totally diverse. So uh, Arabic, 
visitors writing about Africa, merchants, missionaries, traders, uh, soldiers, uh, Europeans mostly writing about Africa in the 16th and 17th century, 18th centuries, they clearly have a, a, a totally lopsided view. And you have to read through their materials to somehow get to the points where you can think I, I, I really I can work with this also we get many compilations so as in all visitors reports or travelers reports you get people who may not even have been there and just reuse notes written down by others so you have to be as always very critical in using your sources uh, for the Aztecs and for the Incas we only have the the, the sources or we basically the, the main source we have is is are the codices that were that were written as you will know by by the Spanish missionaries or uh, in consultation with uh, with the locals in the 16th century. So after the conquest, basically, and this is all warped in the sense that it tries to make points that are implicit, that are unclear, and we have to find a way uh, to to what's behind this. But at the same time, there's archaeology, there's anthropology, there's lots of other materials that are not necessarily um, based on these written sources that give you some cues. And also the, the key question would be, do we include them? Or should we say, no, these sources are not really uh, up to a certain level, so let's exclude them. Let's not have the Incas, the Aztecs, Africa, and, and, and so on. And that, I think, is unacceptable. And it's it mm -hmm. goes it goes further than this, because... Most of the sources that I use for Asian history, also published sources, but also the sources that are behind Sinology or, or Ottoman studies or whatsoever, or Mughal or Safavid studies, most of these studies were uh, themselves quite different in nature, are themselves quite different in nature than, let's say, the archival sources that I'm very familiar with for Europe. We have many chronicles, we have many official records, veritable records, as they are called in, in, in Chinese history. And these are redacted sources. These are carefully compiled memories of reigns that also have an immense uh, deformation in them. And so the only thing I can say here is that the, the basic necessity will always be to be quite aware of the nature of the sources that you're using and to uh, sometimes read with the grain, sometimes read against the grain and try to somehow use the material as best as you can, but not to say, well, because of this difficulty, I cannot do comparative history because then you will all be basically redefined to national historians. Yeah, I was on a dissertation committee uh, a while ago, and the student in, in question used that excuse quite a bit. I would ask him, why didn't you look at these sources? And he's like, well, they're biased. They're written from this <laughs> angle. And that's not acceptable. I'm like, you still got to look at them yeah, if you want to. Yeah. All you know, sources your... are biased. I mean, Yeah, yeah. Um, so they, they, you made me think of that. But you're right. I agree I agree with everything you said. That that's an important point. and. Very, just, very good stuff. just the other point that I think is connected to this is why pick some examples and leave out others? Yeah. So I had two main guidelines, as it were, there. First of all, for every main theme, so basically my chapter layout, I wanted to include all the major regions of the world. So roughly um, East Asia, Western South Asia, to some extent Southeast Asia, the, 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 uh, the island groups there. Uh, Europe, North Asia, as far as I could get materials there, not easy. Um, uh, Africa, certainly, and also, as far as possible, the Americas and, and Polynesia, Melanesia. Uh, so, in 
always I used examples from East Asia, South and West Asia, Europe and Africa. And the others come in more incidentally because sim simply the material is more limited. My other argument, and this made Africa more prominent in my book, was to go not so much for the encyclopedic method of getting more and more examples of the same story. Let's say we have Islamicate empires from West Asia to Central Asia to South Asia, even into Southeast uh, Asia. And at a certain point of time, there's, as it were, an exhaustion of examples. You get the same stories over and over again. And they shift, of course, they shift from West to South to East. You get different forms of Islamic, Islamicate empires, but still some of the examples are, are then by then quite familiar. And so what I wanted to do is establish the regional trends, as it were, but always focus on examples that really somehow baffle you, that are different, that, that show mm. you the model I'm trying to establish because implicitly are always thinking about patterns and models and, and that sort of thing. The things that really make this effort more difficult are always the most interesting examples. So uh, a key example for me would be matrilineal succession, matrilineal descent in Africa. So king's sons cannot succeed. Succession has to go through his sister's sons or to a brother born from the same mother or so. This means that the whole notion of dynasty, the whole, the whole idea of father to son concentrated vertical succession breaks down. That you get diffuse sideways, horizontal forms of succession, that you get circulation among different groups and that the whole idea of kingship, of royalty, of dynasty itself is in a way shown to be uh, defined in a narrow European cultural way or a narrow Chinese, you can also say patrilineal, closed, vertical format. And once you see this, you go back to your other examples and you see, well, even in European history, of course, Many people will know this, but also in European history, matrilineal descent implicitly or explicitly plays a major role. And you start looking with the experiences from the one example that you chose because it broke through your categories and you start redefining your categories. And this to me uh, really has been the, the, the joy of making this comparison. Yeah, that was a very interesting part of the book. I didn't, I mean, I knew some of it, but not nearly in the detail that you, you bring. And it really was, was thought-provoking. But before we get into some of the major arguments of your chapters, I thought it would make sense to go over how you chose the periodization of the book in terms of deciding to take this time period and use it to use your case studies to explain uh, dynastic power. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more yeah. about periodization. Yeah, well, well, that's again, it's a very relevant point because... Um, for this theme, I think you could really take world history as a starting point. Of course, for practical reasons, this is hardly feasible. Uh, but it could you, you could bring in uh, earlier examples and, and, and you could just skip the whole period and say, well, this is this is dynastic power too cool. It's, it's all over the place. Of course, that would have been far more difficult to organize and your examples are even more spread out and, and you get thinner. So I didn't want to do that. And it made sense for me in a way to, to, to combine it with the connected perspective that we started out discussing and, and to say, well, we need sources. Uh, we also, I, I use sources a lot that represent the views of others, of travelers, of people moving from one place to another. And then clearly uh, one possible starting point, which I in the end went for, is 
the, the, the period that we sometimes label as the Pax Mongolica, the, the, the period just following on the major Mongol conquests that restored, as it were, a unity or restored or created, I maybe should say, a unity along uh, the, the Eurasian continent that, that stimulated movement for, for uh, people's movement eastwards, westwards, and that also generated lots of sources. And this gets more intense, of course, in the later 15th and 16th and 17th century. So the, the, the connected world provides me with sources and the connections get stronger in the 13th, 14th century or after the Mongol conquests. And then, of course, the connections keep getting stronger in the 18th and 19th and 20th century. Uh, but then, of course, uh, from the later 18th century onwards, I wouldn't position it much earlier than that. A European hegemony is is unchallenged. Of course, there's still China. There, the Ottomans are still independent. Japan keeps its independence, but no single example. In the Chinese case here in the 19th century would be a staggering example. No single example can be given of an empire that really follows its own track. Uh, is is not seriously dominated. Dominated, I shouldn't say, but seriously moved and, and, and uh, forced in a certain direction by the European presence. Of course, for the African uh, polities, this, this would be true much earlier in the 16th century, and slavery is, is a key issue from the late 16th or the 16th and 17th century, and some of the kingdoms I'm looking at uh, were based on the wealth created through slavery because they themselves were organized or, or profited from slavery. So this is it, it's not an entirely consistent point in the sense that you could say this is before European influence and this is after or so, but still where the European impact was so strong that it redefined separate polities as colonies or as groups under Euro European control, then the comparison loses its force because you are all, you're looking at many variants of cultures that are being redefined in a colonial setup and that doesn't really give me the type of examples that I would want to have without mm. being naive in the sense that you deny earlier contexts. Contexts are of all times and all places and influences are always quite important. But, the, but really, I think that from 1800 onwards, a bit earlier, uh, particularly after the, the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars and with, with uh, the global hegemony of, of, of Europe is so strong, that you can no longer compare in the same way. Yeah, I think I think that approach makes perfect sense. I, I think it's well done too. And when you when you, when you when you set up all the, the stuff we've gone over in the interview, you set it up in the introduction, and, and, and it's well done. And then you get into the actual chapters that you frame in the introduction as concentric circles that start at the center and then move its way out to explain the functioning of dynastic power. So I was wondering if we could just go through maybe perhaps some of the main points that you make in the chapter uh, or in the chapter, starting with this idea of the ruler versus the per the position versus the person, yeah. this ideal of what a king is and what a king can do in the system. Yeah. And you make a, you make a number of arguments, but it's it's interesting that on some level you 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 come to the conclusion that kings do not always have as much power or queens and even if the case may be have as much power as that we yeah. sometimes think they did yeah certainly yeah maybe just if you allow uh, uh, one word about a few words about these concentric circles 
Oh, of course. Yeah, so, as, I, as I mentioned before, uh, comparative history, global history, uh, sometimes gets very distant from human experiences. And what I've tried to do consistently in this book is to somehow get as close to the people involved as you can. And so also the layout of the book, it starts, the heart of the book is the person who's, as it were, uh, on the throne. And then you move to his immediate or her immediate uh, kin, family, relatives, potential successors. Then you move to the social environment of these people and then you move to the, to the realm at large. So... Uh, you, you want to stay close to people and close to experiences in this layout. And this, of course, maybe is most extreme in, in the first example that you're referring to. Um, yeah, you, 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 you underline that I, I somehow question the view of omnipotence that we often attribute to earlier, let's say, pre-revolutionary rulers. And there's... I say this is also the, the tension between person and position. There is an immense tendency, and it's, it's also a tendency that's still strong in, in history textbooks and overviews, to somehow uh, fail to distinguish between the ambitions and the show of power of pre-modern rulership. Of course, th th this is power that is exclaimed in a sometimes extravagant way, that it's, it's phrased very often in uh, as, as being invulnerable to almost anything. These are very strong figures. Uh, they are entitled to do almost anything or many things uh, in any case. And we fail to to see the, the fact that this is this is a uh, let's say this is a, a an attempt to demonstrate something that in practice works entirely different. These people. Uh, whether they they uh, try to govern big empires or small states or small polities, uh, their means of communication were extremely limited. Their means of coercion could be big, but then they could never be used consistently throughout their region, throughout their realm. This was all actually their 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 power was extremely limited. So in a technical way, their infrastructure, their power, their communication. Uh, their their coercive power they were all relatively limited and this is not the key of the chapter because this is yeah i think a well-known fact for people who study pre-modern or early modern uh, history is that we tend to overstate the power of people yeah. on the throne uh, also really important is i think um two things at the same time uh, these these figures tended to take uh, the catalogue of virtues that was imposed on them as children quite seriously. And they were intimidated by the fact that they had to be all these things at the same time. They had to guarantee harmony uh, with heavens, but also among parties at court. They uh, would, would have to be the ideal uh, ruler to control all their passions, to, to be many things at the same time that tend to be totally inconsistent. So to be stern and strong and to be liberal and merciful and to be uh, to, to be a spent a spendthrift at the, at the same time not spend too much money because you don't want to overtax the pe the people so the, all these demands are entirely inconsistent and too heavy and still you get the impression these figures for, seriously wanted to adhere to this and the fact that there were so many total misfits which i think is yeah. easy to 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 find out, yeah. if you look at the history of dynastic power, many people just could not perform this role uh, adequately or actively or, or successfully, is partly related to the fact that the demands were so high. 
and that these demands and this position of kingship, this position that could never be challenged, did not mean in practice that the persons on the throne could not be challenged. They were challenged permanently. They were, I guess, and there's a nice view here, uh, Clifford Geertz, the, the famous anthropologist, yeah. he, he, he said, well, let's, let's think of these kings as the kings of chess. So, yeah, of course, it's all about the king, but the king is not the main actor. Any other, uh, well, maybe not the pawns, but any of the other uh, chess players, any of the other uh, parts of the, of the game of chess has more maneuverability, has more freedom than the king. So everything is about the king, but the king's freedom is extremely limited. And this is something that you see confirmed permanently in, in in sources and in anything you read about kingship. And also what comes in is we tend to think of figures who rule are usually in our age come in at an age of, well, maybe not the maximum of their powers, not at the height, height of their powers, but they will be chosen at a certain point um, and they may stick to power a bit longer than is healthy for them and for their countries, but they will not be chosen as presidents or so while they're children. And the specificity of dynastic power is that you get you get children on the throne uh, and you get you get greybeards on the throne that's actually again about strong and weak figures about strong and weak kings we tend to generalize uh, a king's power on the basis of two things uh, the power of a king or queen at the height so during full, full physical and, and, and intellectual maturity and the second cr criterion is often, well, success. So uh, were there any uh, results being achieved or so in this period? But we tend to forget uh, two things, that m the longest part of the lives of many rulers were, were really as children or as old, uh, sickly and, and, and insecure people. And also uh, a thing that we can also say about some modern governments, it's really often ridiculous to say, well, these are the results of a certain period of rule and this tells us something about the qualities of this or that king or queen because frequently uh, these things are not even so closely connected there's political contingency there are huge developments that cannot be controlled by a single figure and so our our judgments our views of these figures from the past tend to be warped i guess yeah that that really made me think uh when you, when you when you raise those issues on, on a couple levels, uh, you use this uh, idea of the draining of powers of, of kings and queens. And I think that it's a very appropriate way of looking at it. I, I thought in terms of how even in, you know, the American system anyways, presidents are always told they have a limited time to get their agenda passed before it basically yeah. dissipates. And that's certainly something that goes on. And the way you describe, and this goes for the whole book, but it's, it's just, I'm, I'm just throwing out ideas here. I'm not saying this is the, the truth or anything, but it made me think sometimes that movies, like the worst Hollywood movies sometimes are closer to the truth than how courts actually worked than textbooks. <laughs> when you have like these the treatments of like world history textbooks, talk about the absolute power of Louis the 14th and they kind of lose sight of all the manipulations yeah. going on in the background and you know what information actually gets put before the king that you see yeah you know even in like game of thrones you see this but uh so i was wondering about the movies are actually more well there's there's the last emperor uh yeah Natalucci's movie which i think is a, is a great movie and the thing that i would have as comment on it is uh, well, Puyi, who's who's then uh, who, who then becomes emperor, you see him being trained as a young boy, and his play with the eunuchs. That's a that's a totally 
plausible image that he gives. But yeah. then you have to remind yourself this is the same story for all these earlier emperors. So it's not it's not necessarily relevant only or mostly for this person who becomes the last emperor, but it would be the same story of any youngster sitting on the throne anywhere. You have a group around you. And so Betelucci's movie stresses sort of the... Uh, it's it's the end of empire. Uh, it's it, it, there's revolution. There's republic. That you you trace this figure throughout this movie, but the start of the movie basically could be transposed to the 13th century, and it would still make sense. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, you have these images. I I believe I think it's Louis the 14th who was supposed to give a speech when he was nine or something, or yeah. when he started crying, or yeah. having to meet a Dutch diplomat when he was a child. The yeah. Dutch diplomat was yeah. Like so you want to show that I, yeah, <laughs> the, the image in the in the front when he he spoke to the Parlement yeah. de Paris and he just he had his 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 speech uh, prepared and then he loses the text and he breaks out in, in tears, <laughs> and so this is relevant to me because what we always say is the king a few years later in the, in the same Parlement de Paris. And this is a famous quote, and it's, it's one of these many historical quotes that are totally inaccurate, just plainly wrong. The king's meeting his parlementaire in Paris, so the great judges of the realm says, l'état c'est moi. Well, this is a made-up quote. He never said anything, any, uh, anything close to it. But what we tend to do in history is find the images, and this sometimes happens in films too, Find the oh, yeah. quotes, the 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 sound bites, the images that really conform a certain cliche or image that we want to be confirmed, and that we do not spend enough time to really look for the plausibility of these images. And so, what I try to do in the book is reduce these kings to to what they are, persons like you and me, and see how they could function, how they were hampered, how they were restricted, how they were intensely frustrated, how some of them who who actually started out as reasonably sensible and intelligent people were so frustrated by their limited roles and by all the complications they encountered that they became either really violent, awkward figures or that they entirely withdrew into their own uh, secluded sphere in the inner part of the court. And what you want to show is that uh, even very strong figures like Louis XIV, like Ottoman Sultan Suleiman, like uh, the Kangxi Emperor of the Qing Dynasty, they all experience the same restrictions, the same complications. And of course, of course, in any specific context, this will play out differently. But there are certain uh, restrictions that you really also anybody looking back in time to this period of, of history uh, should step beyond the idea of oh these were so powerful figures they could do anything they like no they were in in very many ways immensely restrained in what they could do yeah yeah it's it's all it's all very good good stuff and important points to think about uh, more than perhaps we we sometimes do and in the second concentric circle you move to reproduction and succession and what stands out in this chapter in my mind i mean there's many points i'm not by any means exhausting them is you you focus on the limits of primogeniture, but uh, you also bring in a lot about the role of women, how they played, yeah. and how dynasties unfolded, and succession issues. I mean, even things like the use of harems by Islamic empires is a very interesting part of this chapter. And I was wondering if you could say a little more about that. Yeah, yeah. First of all, the, the, there's a big jump from the first chapter to the second chapter. The first chapter starts out with literary tracts about ideal kingship, and women are hardly anywhere to be found there. And so there is this tendency to look back on history and look at these predominantly male rulers and then 
to forget that women were very present. And in any dynastic context, I would say women are uh, always very strongly present, although in very different roles. And this is what I try to make clear in this in this chapter, and to look also at very different positions. So f- women formally ruling yeah, as, as the sovereign. This is really the exception globally. Uh, women who have a, a, a key position as mothers, as queen mothers. I think this is predominant, probably the the, the strongest position that women hold in dynastic power constellations across the globe, although there are major differences here between uh, queen mothers who have uh, minor sons and who can rule uh, or as regents in, in, in Europe or in China or in some other parts of the world, as valida sultans in, in, in the Ottoman case, and uh, reign mates or queen mothers who rule permanently side by side with the king as as maybe not entirely equal but in most respects equal power holders in many african examples and then there are daughters and sisters there are many categories to to consider and i try to consider them all carefully in 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 the book um we have to keep in mind though that there are two i think major divergences you mentioned harem-based courts and polygyny Uh, i'm not a fan of pointing to the european Exception, because I think we usually tend to overstate it. But it is relevant to note that Christian Europe is the only case that I've been able to trace uh, in in my period throughout the globe where dynastic reproduction was not polygynous, where it was monogamous, where succession was primarily based on uh, legitimate uh, succession through Mm. monogamous marriage. There are all sorts of intermediate cases where marriage and concubinage are combined in, in, in the Muslim and the Islamic case, also in China. But all other examples of rulership go together with polygyny, with many women present. And so that raises all sorts of questions about what were the diff- which, which structural differences did this create or did it create structural differences. It did have an immense impact on the structure of courts because polygyny usually se- dictates an inner part with women but without men or with eunuchs, sort of the intermediate category, that is restricted to most other males or often to all other males except, of course, for the ruler himself, himself and usually for young princes. So this creates a different dimension of access, decision-making. And I've pondered the question, does it really make a fundamental difference? And in the end, I, I hesitate to, to underline this. I think some of the key problems were similar in Europe uh, and, and in all the other examples I can find. So it is important to note there are key dif- differences here, but it's not. it does not create a different world or so. But it's still, it's an important conclusion to say, well, well this was... Here is a very clear, very outspoken uh, difference. Yeah, about women, one other point I found interesting is, first of all, across the globe, they usually step in, not because they are the preferred candidates, but because there's uh, there's no male candidate present. Yeah. On the other hand, once they step in as sovereign rulers, uh, you see that they can change the perception or that they can change political practice in the sense that in... In, 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 in Southeast Asia, in, in the sultanates of uh, Patani and Aceh, uh, you have a succession of women rulers. In early Japan, there's a succession of women rulers. There are several, several African examples where there's a succession of women yeah. rulers who are really then the preferred candidates on the throne. Uh, but then in 
a generation or two or three or four, you see that it shifts back to uh, accepted male power as, as the common form. So, but I found interesting the fact that, that women can apparently through their example and through their influence maybe also generate at least um, 80 years or, or more of women uh, succession on the throne. But then it, diff- it, it, it disappears again and, and the males come back. No. Yeah. 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 Oh, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. Please. No, you go ahead. Oh, I, I also found it interesting. I didn't know about this at all about the role in the in the Safavid Empire. About I think it was the daughters who yeah. became advisors to kings and really were influential in divvying out advice and trying to to frame things yeah. uh, for the rulers. That's not something that I I know much about at all. But it, it's very interesting to read. Yeah. What I find interesting is that I want to define cases where women had not so much indirect informal influence through their husbands or through their, their, their the rulers or through others, but also just differentiate sharply. In many cases, women had formalized influence, were really played a key role. But uh, And so I, I try to differentiate a bit, not talk about powerful women in history or so, but to, to consider the categories, the positions they could have and, and differentiate more sharply between them. And also, well, the Safavid case is also is, is interesting because there are powerful women there. What you can see, for instance, is clearly, and it's an, an interesting question too, that you can clearly see the nomadic Central Asian peoples, so the, the, the Mongols, the Manchus and others, uh, they tend to have a, a quite strong position for women. And once these uh, nomadic peoples move out and conquer China with its strong patrilineal tradition or move into West Asia and, 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 and mix with traditions there, with the Islamic traditions, you see that there is a tendency for women to become slightly less uh, central mm-hmm. to the polity. The Safavids are an interesting case because they, 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 they cling to these traditions to some extent of, uh, for, for, of a role for females. And they um, also allow succession through women in some cases. So it's not preferred form, but they allow it. And so I want to define very precisely uh, how you can trace the changes uh, of of female power also in uh, when uh, when these peoples, when these dynasties move from one part to another and have to adapt to different forms. Uh, so even I don't mention it in my book, but the, the Jochits, so the most northwest f- uh, branch of, of the Mongols, at one point considered uh, electing a female Khan. And then apparently it is said that the local governors uh, who were against it had mostly had an Islamic background. So uh, here you see how the mixture how the, uh, of a certain two traditions can create a difference. Interesting. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, wow. Uh, and, and as far as, I mean, af- after after chapter two, you move on to really the hornet's nest of the court yeah. and groups and balances, as you as you call your circle. And there's so much we could go over. I mean, we're I, I've taken a lot of your time and you've, you've given us a lot of great information. But what, what, what strikes me in this chapter is just the complexities of trying to keep power balanced and dealing with different factions and you also, the way that you portray uh, Louis XIV at Versailles is different than how it's been taught uh, by a lot of uh, textbooks and a lot of yeah. <laughs> a lot of teachers. Uh, so I was wondering if you could just give us a small feel for yeah. 
what your conclusions are in this in this very good chapter. Yeah, well, Louis the Fourteenth is is let's say used to be the core of my research with the Habsburg. So I'm uh, I, I try not to say too much about him in the book. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. But what what's true is that what we we tend to look at a few examples in world history, and Louis the Fourteenth is prominent among them. And then we say, well, we get the view of, of, of the gilded cage. We get the view of the court as a place where it's either it's presented as a temple, Temple de la Gloire, a temple of glory, where you have this key figure at the heart who controls everything, who is at the heart of a very precise machinery of ceremonial, of rituals. And then the, all, always the French examples of the levee and the coucher are mentioned. Uh, there's the there's the, the view of the court as a cage where where uh, where rebellious nobles were, as the term goes, domesticated, as it were, herded together, uh, and there's the view uh, of divide and rule. Now, um, you, at, at, in the last parts of the chapter, I look at these three metaphors because they are nothing more than metaphors. Or metaphors are very relevant, but we should know th- these are metaphors. The temple. And the role of ceremony in ruling, and I come to the conclusion: well, of course, incidentally, uh, you will use ritual appurtenances and ceremony. You will permanently use them as a, as an outward show to show people: here I am. This is this is what I am. And most kings were, even if they deeply believed in these in in this role, they were still quite keenly aware of the impact of a great show. So that's one point. But ceremony is not so much a field where you can easily control elites or manipulate elites as it is often been as it has often been stated for for Louis the 14th and I find the same in his case as I see in many other cases this is something that is a constraint rather for the figure in the center who has to perform a certain role who is at the heart of the observation of many people and whose let's say he his his options his potential to take distance from the role he's playing is really quite limited and so it's not uh, 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 the temple is not a place where you uh, where you can easily put down somebody and promote another as it as it has yeah. frequently been been stated in, in, in on the French court and other courts, and it could go into great detail here, uh, but just maybe one example and why not give the French example uh, of the levee and the coucher, so the the morning and evening rituals, we always see them as sort of a highly artificial restriction of access and so complicated so many rules actually what they reflect is the traditional french reputation of familiar kingship any nobleman has the right to enter and this was uh, even greatly debated and challenged in the 16th century where henry iii uh, the last valois king introduced in uh, a new court order and he actually he he wanted to try to keep these noblemen away from himself. He told you, don't bend over me during my meals. Don't just bump into my room. I need to, to make all sorts of arrangements here. And so the background of these, uh, of, of these uh, domestic forms of behavior were not so much ceremony, but were actually the, the very fact that a king could not separate himself from his elites and his nobles. He needed to be there and were based on familiarity and ease of access rather than on, on ceremonial rules. Now, I shouldn't go on too long about this and maybe move to the cage idea where there's the view that, well, you bring all these nobles together in Versailles or you, to, to, to jump to the other famous example, you you force all the daimyo in Tokugawa, Japan, to come to Edo and to, to pay their uh, homage to the to the shogun. Uh, there's more to say about this, particularly about the Tokugawa case, uh, in that 
of course, people want to go to the court because it's a place where you can obtain all sorts of benefits. It's a center of redistribution. Uh, what Louis XIV in practice did was forbidding uh, or sending away many people. So what he, and he yeah. is really an exception there. He was able to reduce the numbers of his court, uh, which had inflated immensely during a period of political crisis, during the reign of his mother, Andotrich. And basically when you see in Europe, and this may be different elsewhere, in Europe when you see an explosion, you will know here's a phase of political crisis and weakness of the figure in charge. Whereas reduction of numbers means, well, here's a figure who holds the reins in his hand and who's really able to somehow reduce costs. This is all about budget reduction. Not only about budget reduction, it's also about making court office prestigious and attractive. It's too many people, once too many people hold office, the highest nobles will say, well, this is not for me. I'm not really, uh, why should I go? So if you send away most, if you keep it limited and attractive for a small group, then you have a chance of bringing these people in. And this was done more with attraction than with force, I would say. And it was very limited to an upper group that in the long run dominates the French state as a whole in, in, in regional government, in the army, in diplomacy, and in the 18th century also in central decision making. So... Yeah, the old story actually here is quite wrong. Uh, but still, the, the image of the cage is relevant for uh, Tokugawa Japan, but there's, it's different again because you do force the daimyo to, bring, to come together in Edo, but you give them full reign, uh, full leeway in their own domain. So they come to the center and their travel back and forth to the center is really of great importance for Tokugawa Japan, but in their own domains, they are really very powerful. And the shoguns have no interest in, in, in really undermining or reducing their powers there. And actually the whole metaphor of the cage comes maybe from the Ottoman court where successors, so the, the members of the house of Osman, uh, the princes and, and the brothers of the, the sons and brothers of, of ruling sultans were brought together in the harem and could no longer move outwards, were no longer uh, expected to govern, to fight or whatsoever, really secluded there. And this form of impotence, form of seclusion, it clearly was not uh, meant to include the nobility or the great lords, but this was only about those who could uh, ascend the throne. And this variant can be found in some parts of Africa, notably in Ethiopia. And you can say in general terms, the ones who are closest to succession are the ones most likely to be under some form of strict control in dynastic context, because simply they are the most dangerous rivals, far more dangerous than anybody else. So that's one... Uh, that's the point about about the cage and the arena. Yeah, I do think, uh, of course, even in contemporary politics, dividing uh, uh, rule by dividing uh, will be practiced by people. It's it's one of the standard ploys of any figure in power. And again, here, courts are always about. Uh, distribution de grâce, as the 17th century French quote would have it about. The ruler is the fountain of honors. He distributes ranks, titles, offices. And what you do is giving some more, others less, uh, and to, to somehow make sure that you will not create rivals. And you can do this at the individual level, promoting somebody who's very loyal, demoting or not giving somebody uh, his or her due, mostly his due, who, is, who appears to be not entirely loyal. This game is, is being played permanently. And then you can incidentally do it at the level of social groups. So you have a, a very strong landed elite or so, a nobility, and you raise others to higher power. Yeah. 
uh, exiles, religious disciples, uh, well, an example like the, the, the Ottoman death Sirma system. So you have a, a, you create an elite based on slavery and you reduce empower uh, other elites. You, 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 you bring in at the heart of power new groups who start out as your supporters. But then, of course, even all these groups very quickly develop their own dynamic as elites, will establish their own vested rights, will compete with you as a ruler for these rights, and you will be in, maybe not in the same situation, but in a structurally similar situation. Now, my, my key point here, and this again brings me to your earlier question about the power of kings, is that kings can do only so much. You need to be extremely talented, careful, and also maybe awkwardly violent to use these instruments <laughs> effectively. And you can do so only for a short term. In, in the end, they will always somehow, uh, these elites, keep up with you or, 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 or will turn out to be the stronger party. And you have to keep in mind here that there are many examples of figures who are maybe able to deal with these challenges effectively for five years, for ten, year, ten years or so, but then you lose lose grip, lose 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 track and, and, and uh, fall back. And that there are many others who simply never ascend to that level. They are just objects of the elites around them yeah. rather than active figures pulling ropes and, and acting as 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 arbit uh, arbiters. And so this is what you always have to keep in mind. It's even for a single strong figure, it's not a lifetime experience. And putting all these, I've seen so many uh, records of kings and queens throughout the world, putting them all side by side, you are struck by the many who really could not compete and who were probably, and I think that's a really relevant category too, who were the most successful of many of the most successful, actually just complied in a friendly way with the demands of the inner core of advisors, were represented outwardly as powerful and good and just rulers, but in fact were, as it were, organized. Uh, the, the mise-en-scene was, it was in the hands of their, of, of their immediate environment. They were not the, the, the powerful figures. And we, yeah. can, we can never really, this is one of the key problems, I think, we can never really find out who was the actor here, who were the actors here, and who were just the ones who were being manipulated. We have examples in all directions. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard to pin down. Yeah. Is, uh... yeah, you need sources, and in some cases, uh, you really have sources, and once you have sources, in the incidental cases where you have rich materials, you, you can always find out, even in the case of very strong rulers, there's a balance. Uh, there's always this group of people, proximates to power, who are the, the movers and the shakers. And once you yeah. know their interests, and I think the, you cannot always prove this, but you just need to take for granted, you need to look for these people and for their interests before you can give a balanced, adequate image of how courts function. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to chew on in that chapter. Uh, just, we're just scratching the surface. I also liked the stuff you had on the uh, the Qing Dynasty and how the emperors weren't as secluded as treatments of European descriptions or other descriptions. Yeah. Of, of, well, that's, yeah. that's one other point. It's easy to to jump to let's say east-west uh, cliches and definitions. So it it would be very common to say, well. European rulers were accessible, relatively accessible. They moved out. They invited people into the heart of their courts, which to a certain extent is true because they, these courts weren't harem-based. And so the male domain around a ruler's, in a ruler's private quarters 
was relatively more accessible than the female harem domain around many rulers in Asia. So there's a core, there's a, an element of truth in this. But I'm, I, I, I find it funny to, to listen to uh, the Safavid Shah Abbas I, who pokes fun at European rulers as well, they, and he pokes fun mostly at, at the Spanish, uh, Spanish kings who were, uh, he, he was thinking about at the time, and said, well, they just sit in their palaces, they lost the liberty to move around in their cities. And actually we see many uh, examples of... Uh, uh, rulers in West Asia who are relatively accessible, who are who accept the logic that they need to show themselves in the march to Friday prayer, that they need to be accessible to some point, and uh, there are others who are really totally inaccessible in Europe as well as in West Asia as well as in East Asia. And then the the Qing are interesting because they, as an as an as an outside dynasty, as as a nomadic people, Manchus, well, they were no longer nomadic, but they conquered China, they came in, and they bring in a fresh air of movement, of battlefield experience, of uh, of mobility, of personal uh, valor, and they clearly take more initiatives, they are more accessible. But even here, the the personal dimension, uh, we have earlier Chinese rulers in the Ming uh, who also want to move outward, who also wanted to be mobile, to be military heroes, but then you can say there is a cultural tradition that that keeps them within certain bounds or creates conflict when they themselves do not want to respect these boundaries. So there is a culture uh, that can, of course, have a major impact on these figures. But then the variety um, of these characters on the throne throughout the regions that I've been looking at, I can find easily accessible or very secluded figures in Europe, in West Asia and East Asia. And also over time, there's another image particularly relevant for Europe that you say, well, late medieval rulers were so boisterous, friendly, familiar. And then over time, they withdraw in their pleasure castles and people can no longer access them. And yeah, there is maybe a heart of truth in this. We see these palaces, these these uh, hunting lodges all over Europe, but they were often quite accessible. And again, here, the personal dimension is very powerful. Some figures just like being watched and they like the show. Others <laughs> find, it, find it really a horrible experience. So... To, to, to make a long story short, the personalities, the characteristics of individuals on the throne, yeah, of course, it's a cliche, but they were very relevant and they break through regional models and, and long-term developments. Yeah, when I read that, I, I thought of, I mean, it's not exactly it's not related to your book, but Queen Victoria basically went incognito after her husband died. Yeah. And just like secluded herself and wore black for I don't know how long for years, and she then the system kept going, yeah. uh, even when she didn't want to be bothered and was in mourning. Yeah, that's so. that's a great example, and I think it relates directly to some of my themes. So, to life cycle experiences, you get older, you have an, a really a, 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 an experience like losing your 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 husband. We have the same story of Maria Theresa of of. of of Austria, the Habsburg Empress. So these are formative experiences and they will change your, your position fundamentally. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting. It's a good segue in, in the in chapter four, you deal with the realm. Uh and how one of one of the big questions, I mean there's a lot in this chapter as well, but how did the dynasties project their power and you know, wh- how did why did people follow it? Why did people who are governed relatively lightly, I mean, maybe even a lot lightly by modern standards, buy into the system that was obviously very based on some level of inequality and 
yeah. that some people were better than others. I think that's an interesting argument, how you, you deal with that question. And yeah. There are other questions in the chapter, but that, yeah, that this one is, this is really, out uh, It's the key question, and it's the most difficult question to answer. You can yeah. easily somehow uh, provide an overview of all sorts of contexts that you can find out between courts and, and, and the wider world that they governed. And, 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 and your question is difficult because what we have primarily is a top-down view here. What we primarily have is texts, images, yeah. palaces and everything, but also ritual descriptions of uh, a show as it was intended by the ones who organized it. And you need other sources to really come to the heart of uh, how did people see this? Um, my, my, again, sources are important here. So my experience is when, wherever I can, and this is mostly my European background, wherever I can reconstruct perceptions, reception of all this dynastic show, uh, what you see is basically two things. And I think this, this is relevant on a global scale. On the one hand, we should really keep in mind that this, the basic dynastic sort of hierarchical setup is something that is inherent to the cultures that we're looking at. This is how they function. This is how they see their own households. This is how they see the world where they live. This is how they see the heaven. This is how they see order in general. So there's no sense of this in principle is oppression or so. There's a, an overall sense of this is how the world should be. Uh, at the same time, there's clearly a strong feeling about that kings can be very, very, very bad. And that kings can really destroy lives, can destroy countries. And so you have this this this, this Janus-faced view of politics. On the one hand, this is the system that we base. On the other hand, it frequently goes wrong in a terrible way. And actually, I think we have the same Janus-faced situation in modern politics. Well, many people yeah. in many countries would say, I accept democracy. It's the best I can sort of imagine how it works, but I hate politicians and I hate these <laughs> I hate these bureaucratic centers. I hate the, the, the Washington Beltway, I hate Brussels, all our politicians are liars. This is this is the explanation for the popularity of populists. So basically uh, and this is just the very the most extra abstract general answer basically I think this is similar in the period that I'm looking at. But also there are quite concrete ways uh, connecting forms of representation, you could say. The easiest form of representation is just hospitality. Allow people to come in, to eat, to sit at your table, uh, give them presents, accept presents from them. There's, this is a center of exchange. This is a hub of exchange that in, in, smaller, uh, in smaller realms does not include only elites, but includes really not entire populations, but for instance, all villages, all regions. Uh, so there is this this sense of belonging to you're entitled to go there you're entitled to eat there you are entitled to hold certain offices offices that for instance in african courts can bring in a certain region or a certain craft or a certain hereditary lineage they all have the right to be there at court and to have certain privileges they all have the right to partake in the bounty of the court in one way or another not just sitting at the table uh, but also just getting certain gifts, getting certain privileges. And it's uh, an, uh, an, and this will attach many groups to the court. And there the variety across the globe is interesting. I think in Europe, um, 
we have this this what we still have the the you, you, you know the 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 orders, the distinguished service orders, that sort of thing. You, uh, you, you still have all sorts of medals and so on. Of course, this is a, a typically monarchical dynastic element where you can say we reward peoples and we, in, in, in my period, we also give them an order of chivalry or so, which, which brings in the right to attend certain meetings, the right to come to certain uh, major occasions. And you have hundreds and sometimes thousands of people who enjoy these honors. Whereas I do not find... An exactly uh, an exact parallel for these things in most of the other courts I'm looking at, but one of one of the grounds I would say for harem-based courts is not uh, the fact that a ruler is an extremely lustful figure. In fact, reproduction is often quite rigidly controlled, but that uh, women are also um, molding together societies. They we have uh, in African contexts chiefs sending their daughters to the harem. And getting wives from the harem, so there's a, 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 a two-sided system of exchange of women, uh, and this can be very friendly, and it can also have a more of a hostage character. The, the, the Mughal rulers of India, they bring into their harem, in the, into their harem, uh, lots of Rajput princesses. The, 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 the Indian nobles they were gradually integrating and conquering, uh, and they had all sorts of groups there uh, that were also part of their uh, attempt to, to, to bring together these realms under their rule. And they, again, also gave women to their loyal servants. Of course, the problem here is that you use women as as exchange material, as objects rather than as acting yeah. uh, figures. And I have other parts in the book where I underline very strongly this. Uh, so I find interesting one, one minor, minor example here. Uh, we, we get the Ashanti king in, in the early 20th century. He's exiled to the Seychelles, and he lives an entirely monogamous life there. In 1924, he's restored to a certain level of power in, Ash, in Ashanti, in the, in, the, in the Ashanti Federation. And the first thing, or one of the first things he does is restoring the harem, because he explains this is the basis of our polity. This brings together... Uh, the peoples, because it, it is the connection between all these chiefs, all these important figures within the Ashanti Federation and uh, and the power of the Ashanti Hena, the king. So it shows that this is another moment, uh, form of connecting. And you move to the great rituals. All the great rituals in all these, uh, in, in all these polities and empires are really connected to the basic ritual religious life cycle that anybody can recognize. Uh, whether it would be the the, the 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 Christmas and Easter cycles in Europe, whether it would be the the, 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 the cycles in the Islamic world or the grand sacrifices in, in 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 China, or the rituals in Japan, there's always a very clear connection to the everyday life of people. This is what happens now. Even if you can't see it, you know these great rituals take place at the same time. Uh, in at, at court in Japan, nobody could see it. What the emperor did in in China, the rituals were secluded. In West Asia, Europe, many people flocked to see them. Uh, but still, there is a certain uh, resonance, consistency throughout society in what was performed at the center there. Um, of course, then you 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 reach a point where there really is an important difference in scale and and world historical time. Uh, one of the themes we we mentioned at the beginning, yeah, a, a small African polity can bring together in active interaction uh, all the relevant people, all the relevant elites, as it were. Uh, whereas in China, with millions, hundred million under the Ming, or by the late Qing, eight uh, three hundred million. 
you need an, an, an immensely complicated bureaucratic apparatus yeah. and you, you have a system that's based on writing, on evaluation, on very highly formalized rankings and rewards. Uh, but that also brings together uh, 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 realms and you see Europe is a latecomer in, in these bureaucratic apparatuses if you want to use the word bureaucratic relative latecomer but in West Asia and East Asia they have a long history a longer history and, and, and finally um, the key problem here of most forms of pre-modern power almost all forms of dynastic power is delegation and gradually losing power and this connects also to what we see as the uh, the dynastic cycle uh, in, in the Arabic world, uh, Ibn Khaldun and other writers speak about dynasties do not take longer than three or four generations, then they will dwindle, others will take over, fresh people from the desert will conquer and will become urbanized, becoming urbanized, they become used to luxury, they lose their power, and others will take over. So you get an ongoing, an, an ongoing movement, the Chinese dynastic cycle says something similar in diff different terminology with a different uh, but but also stressing that early rulers in a dynasty tend to be strong and then they lose morality, they, they become luxurious, they exploit their peoples and they lose the mandate of heaven. Now, what I think is if you take a bit, if you take distance from this normative view, this very powerfully normative view of dynastic power, but just keep in mind the problems of delegation, the, the fact that you start out uh, with your own group of followers, uh, for a Chinese dynasty as the Qing, they bring in their own group of followers. There's very strong coherence here. Then these people in many dynasties, this, they, they need to be rewarded. They need to be uh, turned into elites. Then they gradually drift away from central power. They develop their local power bases. And in the end, they make dynastic, the, uh, they make dynastic power almost impossible. And this whole machinery of giving and, and keeping close to the center and rewarding is, I think... Uh, an, an attempt, maybe not always so conscious, but an attempt to to keep attached to this dynastic center, these intermediate elites. And of course, for the people at large, for the populace, uh, the rewards were 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 uh, less attractive, and the the the, the punishments could be quite uh, quite horrifying. Uh, not throughout the whole country, uh, usually because of reasons of scale and limited power. But here, of course, uh, they were not the ones. Yeah, maybe in the Chinese case, they would get some support in, in cases of hunger. They would get tax reductions. They would get all sorts of, uh, uh, in, in, in times of crisis, they would, they would get some support. And particularly metropolitan populations, always vital for dynasties because they needed to first convince these groups to remain quiet or to accept rule, they could they could regularly be they could expect to be regularly sort of uh, get some rewards too. But on the whole, uh, the question is why did all these populations adhere to it? And then the key thing is the point I started out with: uh, it's a mixture of yeah, as any polity, there's always coercion somewhere also for the intermediate elites. There's always pragmatism. Uh, you get rewards if you if you if you fit in, uh, and there always is, and we tend to underestimate this. There always is a shared ideal. You want to belong to this. You think this is as the world should be organized. And then, of course, what to do with the bad kings? And there, we have many different examples from formal procedure of dethronement to actual actually the idea that is most powerful in Europe before the age of revolutions. Well. 
uh, once you get a bad king, that's that's the uh, that, that's God punishing you for your misbehavior, and the only thing is to do uh, accept it and wait until the king uh, will get his punishments uh, f- from higher authorities, so from from the heaven. Yeah, I mean, you raised a lot of issues, and it's a good segue to the to the your conclusion in terms of you you write a lot about why uh, dynasty or monarchical power begins to ebb as you move further on in history in terms of the rise of the modern states, and you can say more about that if you want. But what what I'm interested in is what this study and your conclusion you address this issue, what it tells us, the study of power, how it has some relation to what's going on in the world today in terms of how people understand power. Uh, just, I mean, the things that come into my mind are things like how Americans seem to be very interested in what's going on with the royal family. Yeah. They're interested in celebrity, um, you know, th- things like this in terms of, you know, lobbying and corruption and politics. Yeah. I was wondering if you could just say a little bit, bit more about that. Yeah, I think these are uh, interesting issues. What I find flabbergasting actually is the fact that um, that royalty still exerts a fascination to many people, whether they live in a monarchy or whether they live in a republic, uh, for some reason. So I've always approached the subject from a certain distance as an anthropologist, basically. Um, I, I've never been attracted or appealed by, let's say, the, the appurtenances of royalty. I, I find it intriguing because I have little or no connection to it. But for some reason, in modern times too, uh, there still is this, and I think you rightly point out, is there's a sense that you also you see the same with uh, with movie stars, maybe with sport heroes, with celebrity on the whole. There is this fascination. I think that's uh, to me an, an, an intriguing issue, but I cannot say too much about it. I think you can say it's it's like it's a leftover of some kind. But what <laughs> what I find interesting is. Uh, the fact that people how do we how do people relate to power they quickly relate to persons in power yeah uh, yeah uh, uh, that seems to be a general situation it's easier and this is basically Louis the 14th wrote interesting memoirs well he didn't write them entirely by himself but he also says well people uh, may not be appealed by uh, by learned treatises, but they would want, they would want to see something. They will they they like spectacle. They want to see a show. They want to see a person elevated above the others. And uh, there is there still is something to it. We can eat more easily relate, or many people can more easily relate to persons uh, than to uh, ideologies or ideas. And uh, my impression is that this has been. Let's say we have a 19th century, early 20th century, where maybe you could say this is too. It's an overstatement. It's like the 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 the, uh, the public sphere, Jürgen Habermas, where, where there's a group, a well-informed group, distant from these perceptions, that is critical, uh, uh, that is based mostly on uh, on writings, on thinking, and so on and so forth. My impression is where, whether or not there ever was an age that really was so dominantly characterized characterized by this öffentlichkeit, by this public sphere. What you see now is that. The show of media, the role of media and politics, creates a, a, a level of convergence which, with the patterns that I've been describing in my book. Uh, it's how you, how you, it's the mise en scène of power. It's how you present yourself, and it's even more extreme, I would say, in modern televised uh, society than it's in my, 
in, in, in the world that I've been looking at. But there's also, as, as I think you, you pointed out, the not only the individuals in power, but also the notion, uh, you can say that's more from the other side, people who are in power or families who are in power uh, also tend to somehow try to do what their uh, dynastic predecessors did, maybe make sure that their children too will have some sort of privileged position or have some sort of... Uh, yeah. powerful position even and we have American political dynasties we have business dynasties where of course inheritance is easier to organize than succession to high office we have modern authoritarian regimes that the North Korean would be the, the, the prime example maybe where succession is just very thinly disguised uh, so I think in, in all political systems there's this there's the personal connection and there's the family basis and uh, as you point out Lobbyism, uh, yeah, no political system can exist. I would, I would assume, uh, without distribution of honors, without yeah, yeah. This is an old term, maybe, but I, I use it for our age as well. Uh, any political political power can be defined in terms of access. Still, who has access to nominations to certain redistribution of wealth of all sorts of decisions and the fact that you see lobbyists moving to the political centers that is just the same world that i've been looking at in my book this is about redistribution of all sorts of things about political centers that define their that their raison d'etre is basically uh, the redistribution it's almost uh, a definition of how political systems work and there too um, I see some concerns. What, 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 what my maybe my, my most difficult issue, and I find it very difficult to phrase, is, um, of course, there's a universal model of political freedom that we would adhere to, that you and I would adhere to. I think that you would find as your define as your own ideal. Still, you know that there are uh, environments. You know, for instance, that the Chinese uh, communist current form will have a high level of acceptance among the population or you will know that certain regimes that you find distasteful uh, let's say Vladimir Putin uh, will have of course he manipulates press and everything uh, will have a certain support among the population at large and that's a problem in a way because you get an uh, uh, I, I wonder about um and this is really difficult to phrase because it, I don't want to somehow either pose as somebody who stresses universal ideals on one hand and this is how the world should be. Yes, I think uh, I, I have an ideal there, but I also think you should try to, to see how a, a society functions, how a different society functions, how you can move from your universal ideas to uh, getting an understanding of, of the local contexts of the reasons why in these uh, different societies um, forms of leadership can lead to a certain acceptance not only on the basis of coercion that of course is a, a prime force but maybe also in other ways and how you can look back at your own society and find out whether um, it's not a bit, a, a bit mixed there too of course I think there are major differences but uh, I'm hesitant both between past and present and between different regions of the world to turn them into a, a, a picture that is too massively black and white. Well, it's a, it's a tough one to get your head around. I mean, if you if you look at the Enlightenment, you've got this tension between tolerance and universals. You've got this idea 
of, you know, that there should be standards that humans are treated in terms of rights, but at the same time, all contexts are different. And how do you judge that? Like I had a podcast, my last podcast is a book about world history. And I asked the authors the question about what, you know, what, what do you do with societies that hold very different values on things like gay marriage yeah. or yeah. the treatment of women or, I mean, how do you, how do you balance that versus kind of Western ideals? And I made the comparison, like, you know, Samuel Huntington's basic argument in class or civilizations is that Westerners basically call their, take their ideals and call them universals. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you, I mean, how do you, is it, is it Eurocentric? Is it to, to call out, you know, like a country like Uganda and their horrific uh, mm-hmm. treatment of homosexuals? Is that some form of imperialism to tell them to stop it? Or is it, yeah. I mean, these are complex questions that we don't have time to get into, but that issue you, you addressed, I think, is, 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 a, is a good one to think about. Yeah. I think the extremes are clear, but, but the, 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 so where in the middle, somewhere between black and white, mm-hmm. where things are really touching, it gets tricky and you have to be very careful. And this is the whole point of, of history and anthropology for me. It's always zooming in and zooming out. You And always also, let's say, moving to very different worlds. And, and 17th century France for me is as different from my contemporary world as, as maybe other parts of the globe are. Um, first you have to somehow you have to see the standards of the locals and understand how they work Um, and this could be a shock at at, at times then you move back to your own culture or to your own environment and again you have to adapt and see well I see it's quite different but now with this experience of what I've seen I recognize certain aspects in my contemporary world that weren't visible to me before and I think this back and forth, this zooming in, zooming out, and moving out of your world and into your world is just one of the joys of history and anthropology. And also one of the joys that makes it for me interesting to look at the contemporary world with a different view. But I, that doesn't make me, that doesn't give me very strong or extreme judgments on it. It's just, sure. as you say, it's very difficult to get your arms around this. Yeah, and I will say, I mean, uh, I've taken so much of your time, and I, I've got one more question after this, this observation. When, when I read Chapter 4, I read it a couple days ago, and I sat, I sat down, and I just couldn't get out of my mind the 1984 presidential election in terms of how power is represented when almost all the polls showed that Americans didn't like Ronald Reagan's policies, but they treated him like some type of Democratic king. Yeah. He, he literally at one point went to NASCAR races with cowboy hats on yeah. and pretended yeah. to drink beers. <laughs> And people were going wild. They were going wild over him. Even though most of the polls show they didn't like his stance toward unions. They didn't like supply side economics as implemented. They thought he was, you know, putting too much emphasis on nuclear weapons. But the fact that he would show up at NASCAR events or horse races (laughs) with the cowboy hat on chopping wood, people ate it up. And that's kind of what some of these kings were going for with the ritual and image beyond the fact that if peasants rebelled for lack of food, they might whack them. Yeah, no, it's totally true. Yeah, I've I've been thinking of these things too. Actually, uh, sort of also the whole choreography of visits, of meetings, of all sorts of things that we tend to look back on history and say, well, this was all ceremonialized and ritual and see how silly. But of course, in our own age too, it's, it's not only is it highly organized, is this spontaneity highly organized, but also people take it immensely seriously. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I can only underline your points. This is it brings <laughs> together these worlds that we tend to position at extremes. Yeah, very much so. And once again, thank you for speaking with me. I, I enjoyed the book. Anyone who teaches world history or is interested in world history should definitely pick up and read your book and grapple with the questions. It's 
it's it's easy to follow. It's it's organized well, and I, and I think you did an excellent job on it. But before we leave, I've got one more question. I was wondering if you could tell the listeners what your future plans are in terms of teaching or scholarship or whatever you might be doing. Yeah, that brings me back to the zooming in and zooming out. Uh, what I what I really like about my profession is that you, um, in teaching as well as in research, is that you can. At times, you have to really go into the archives, go into the materials, uh, feel very close to sort of the, the figures in history that you're looking, uh, concentrate on, I never concentrate on one case, I always compare. So I would want to go back to regions where I know the languages, where I can read the manuscripts and really produce more work in this line, uh, so closer to Europe. On the other hand, I am really determined to go on sort of uh, in one way or another uh, doing global history but trying to define themes uh, and I think uh, another subject could be the intermediary so I'm not looking at the top of society now but the intermediary groups that are so essential uh, in, in any any larger scale political entity uh, throughout history uh, how are they functioning how do they relate to the center so the, the points we've just briefly touched upon I, I, I might just consider uh, working on in, in, in a global uh, in a global scope later on but for the moment I might just also uh, write a very short textbook on uh, a dynasty as a global phenomenon if, if much shorter much more I won't say superficial so I've been discussing this with a publisher and I would want to, to do that just write in maybe in 30,000 words and then starting earlier and including the contemporary age about some of the essential conclusions that we've been discussing today. Yeah, I think I think cogent is, is a good way to put it uh, as far as with the, te- the textbook you are direct and direct and right to the point. Yeah. Is, that sounds like it would be a good project. Well, once again, thank you for, for speaking with me and I wish you the best of luck down the line. Yeah, well, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I really greatly appreciate it. Then. No problem. It was my pleasure. Uh, take care.